In a recent poll by the Kaiser Family Foundation, nearly one in five adult respondents said they've lost a family member to gun violence, and a similar number said they've witnessed someone being shot. Those numbers are even higher for communities of color. A study done on Chicago over a 25-year period shows half of Chicagoans have witnessed a shooting by the time they were 40 years old. 25% of the white Chicagoans surveyed said they witnessed a shooting before they turned 40, whereas 56% of Black and Latino Chicagoans had witnessed a shooting by the same age. About 7.5% of Black respondents and 7% of Latino respondents said they'd been shot themselves by age 40, compared to 3% of white respondents. Furthermore, the average age of those who'd seen shootings was just 14 years old, while the average age for those who had been shot was 17. The implications of gun violence as a public health issue are wide-ranging, and this research underscores how gun violence is negatively impacting the health and well-being of our local communities. In today's episode of the HC3 podcast, we had the absolute privilege of sitting down with the co-founders of one of HC3's longtime community partners, Aklavis. Aklavis is a community health organization focused on employing grassroots leaders from Chicago to support safety, well-being, and growth in vulnerable communities with a strategic focus on primary and secondary violence intervention. President and CEO LeVon Stone Sr. and COO Sheila Regan have been on the front lines of violence interruption for many years. They have continued to build upon their personal and professional experiences to cultivate Aquavis's intentional social network to engage with and support vulnerable individuals and design interventions that simultaneously address risk factors to maximize their impact. This is the HC3 Podcast. We're your hosts, David Smith and Megan Phillip. The presenting sponsor for the HC3 podcast is Rosecrans. Rosecrans is a private, nonprofit organization and nationally recognized leader in treating mental health and substance use disorders for children, teens, young adults, adults, and families. With over 60 locations in Illinois, Wisconsin, and Iowa, their physician-led team has developed an innovative, multidisciplinary, outcomes-informed approach. Rosecrans's comprehensive continuum of care includes individual, group and family therapy, residential care for teens and adults with on-site detox services, intensive outpatient care and continuing care, family support and education, virtual outpatient services, alumni programming and parent support groups, and prevention and early intervention education for students and communities. Since 1916, their unmatched legacy as a proven behavioral health care leader is a source of hope and strength to those they serve. Rosecrans served more than 50,000 people last year. Tell us what Aklavis does. Well, Aklavis does a lot of things. We're a community health organization. So we take public health principles and apply them in a community setting with the most grassroots intention and the most community engagement sort of oriented model. So for us, every person deserves to be able to grow into whatever they'd like to be. And we're here to address health disparities and societal circumstances that prevent people from fulfilling their full human potential. So we really meet people where they're at and try to nourish and encourage and support them to be their best selves. We couldn't have said it no better than that. I think 
identifying the correct people that really serve the the, the uh, demographic, the target population is what public health has the most impact on communities is. You know, you just can't just get anybody because to me, I think what this work has become is like, um, I think street outreach have gotten watered down based on the vetting process. So we just stay true to the cause of uh, what public health really is. And then identifying those folks that's credible messengers that have the lived experience and the relationships to be the messengers. And, and that's kind of the cool thing about getting training wheels in a university context is you get all the theory. And then when we broke out and started our own organization, we're like, okay, let's put pen to paper and make theory into practice and really, really drive that. But with the community and the community's agenda, the community needs really front and center, giving people from the community roles, empowering people from the community in decision-making roles and supporting them. You'd be surprised at how well people do. Can you define what street outreach looks like for your organization, just for for our benefit to understand what that looks like in practice? And to your point, Sheila, it's about working with your communities and really listening to them. So how does that translate into reality? Well, I think the disconnect is street outreach could look a lot of different ways. We're talking about violence prevention street outreach, and that's something unique. Street outreach, you could do street outreach where you, know, you want to get just Anybody could basically do that. You just want to get, you know, publication out there. You want to be community awareness about any topic thing, right? We talk about violence prevention. We're talking about individuals with that lived experience that come from specific communities that have those relationships. That's what makes the street outreach. We're talking about with violence prevention more credible because they have that lived experience. And that lived experience allow you to gain the trust of the community and the community trusts you. You're like the people's champ. You, you can't self-appoint yourself just to do, I mean, street outreach, anybody could come out there and just say, well, we got this pub ed thing we're doing. We just want to go door to door and hang things on you. That's, that's, that could be street outreach. And street outreach could look like just registering folks to vote. That's street outreach. Violence prevention street outreach look different. Sheila, one of the things I, I love about how you just defined the work activist does is you started with it. We're a community health organization, and I don't think anywhere in your answer you used the term violence, violence prevention. You talked about health, maximizing human potential. And that's amazing because right out of the gates, right, it just shows that you see all of this as in a very comprehensive, holistic way. Violence prevention may be a catalyst, it may be a segue, but you're not thinking just about that, you're thinking about the whole person. Talk to me a little bit about how Activist works with other community-based organizations that, that might not have some of the clinical resources or social resources, or that might have some of the, the community, some of the clinical resources or social resources you guys don't have. Like, how do you work with hospitals, emergency departments, housing supportive systems and the like to, to do your work? Well, I think that just, again, taking a public health framework and really understanding people don't exist in a vacuum. They're a part of a family, they're a part of a neighborhood, they're a part of a larger collective community. We, we really look at the landscape and see who's in a position, either by choice or just by, you know, coincidence, who's in a position to support the best health outcomes for the whole city. And then we approach people or they approach us and, and try to collaborate and see where do our interests over, overlap and how do we align our work with theirs. So I think it really very much intentionally is, it's both intentional and organic at the same time. 
because to Vaughn's point, you know, if you know the neighborhood, if you know the people, it's really not hard. It's one conversation leads to another conversation. One relationship leads to another relationship. We're probably one person away from we're every, every employer in the city, right? We're one to two phone calls away from every employer, every agency, every partner you could possibly have. Um, because we're, we're that grassroots in terms of what we do. And I think that, you know, every stakeholder in the city has a vested interest in seeing the city be healthier, more productive, more mutually supportive, more socially cohesive, whatever framing you want to put on it. So when you come and you're honest and you're transparent and you're compassionate, it's not hard to develop a partnership with whatever institution is best fit to serve the people. So for our work in hospitals, you know, we partner with local hospitals and health institutions to get that community vibe, that community insight, that community muscle to support people's health outcomes in real time. You know, we are interested in evaluating and resolving health disparities. There's an opportunity, whenever you see a disparity, there's an opportunity there to improve um, the population's health that's disparately affected. So for us, you know, that's, that's a rational, reasonable, and easy conversation to have with practitioners that really see it on a day-to-day -day basis. One of the things, Vaughn, you said that has always been really important and impressive to me about the work you guys do is the, the nature of the hyper-local grassroots approach that you take. You're, you're, taking, you're sourcing people from within the community who have a shared passion and, and vision for what it is you're trying to achieve, and they throw themselves into it, and I've seen it. I have two questions here. One is, why is that so uniquely important to to an area like South Chicago or West Chicago, having that kind of hyper-local interaction to promote some of the public health ideas that Sheila, you pointed out. The second part of the question is, how do you guys go about finding those people, attracting them, bringing them in, and, and really you know, unlocking their potential to do this kind of, it's hard work, it's really hard work. Um, how, do you, how do you get people to animate around it? I think it goes back to that relationships. For the most part, all that we're doing is based around relationships. And when people trust you, and you trusted in those communities, people tend to seek you out before you could even seek them out. Because again, I'm using myself as an example. I came to this work because a friend of mine was working for an organization. I knew nothing about the work. And when he introduced me to the work, he just was explaining to me what, what it is that outreach looked like and how he was using the public health model. Xavier Williams was saying, man, he can get me a job. He can get me a job. At that time, I wasn't really ready to make that transition in my life. I was living probably as what we, I would always describe as taking the senior route. I was still living a risk behavior lifestyle, right? But what he said made sense to me because they focus was on trying to stop shootings and killings. And in my mind, I'm thinking like, okay, man, that, that makes sense to me. I mean, that's, I agree with that. I could do that as well as continue doing what it was I was doing. At that time, I felt like it was bad for business anyway. So once I bought into it and understood, I, volunteer, I volunteered for three years. But what I did was everybody that I interacted with on a daily basis, I explained what it is he explained to me. So it, it, was, it was an easier sale or easier conversation because people trusted me and they knew my background, they knew where I had come from and what I would and wouldn't do and how, I, before I was even saying HIPAA compliance, I was HIPAA compliant because there was certain things I wouldn't share. So people trusted that. 
but we would have frank conversations about situations. And I wasn't asking who actually did it. I was asking what led up to it and how we could prevent it from being an ongoing mm -hmm. situation. So it depends on who you are and how you approach every situation. Sheila, what would you add to any of that? I would just say, when, when it comes to community, any community, there's like a shared knowledge, a shared network that is sort of unspoken almost. So in terms of like finding people, it's like, what do you mean they're right there? Because they're really in the community. So it's not really, it's not a hunt per se. It's more so if you're, if you're in the community and you know the community, it's not hard to be like, oh, okay, this will be the person. I'll just go talk to that person because you're there and you're a part of those dynamics. What I would add though is, to me, it's always, we talk about how Sheila and I came together and once worked, like she was once my supervisor. And when she came, I was like, who is this young white girl telling me what black folks need in this community, right? Just before we, I bought into this whole public health thing. That's what I'm telling you is, it's, when going back to school and got my bachelor's and my master's, opened my mind to looking at things differently, even when it came down to law enforcement, because coming from where I come from was almost like cops and robbers. It was good, you know, I was doing what I was doing. They, they had a job to do as well. So when, when you when you identify people that's in the community, those folks is gravitated to each other. You, the do this work and do this work successful, we're not asking you to talk to people that you really don't know. We're asking you to go back and we're gonna go basic and go to your house first. And I, we are, I'll make a reference to them like, if it ain't your kids, it's your nieces and nephews. So when we trying to save lives, we trying to change people's mindset, I'm telling the staff that, hey, let's start with your personal circle first. And when I say nieces and nephews, I'm saying some of us was once part of street organizations back in the day when we were younger. And if you were really true to what they said, you was a part of no different if you was an alpha or AKA or part of a different group or organization. That brotherhood that you look for was striving to be a part of. Some of their fathers are no longer around and some of their mothers are no longer around. So traditionally, this would be your niece and nephew. So it's an easier conversation to have about people that you care about. So, and again, if you start in your community, start one house at a time, one block at a time, and then you go from one block to the next block, but you go start at one house from a time, you start from your house. So to me, that's basic public health. Public health ain't, you ain't gotta have a lot of big jargon with, it's gonna be something simple. Stop shootings and killings. I mean, that's a more direct conversation and how you describe it gonna be more details. I wanna kind of split up the work you guys do into two buckets and you guys can course correct me if there are better buckets, but, there's there's the work you do, this just kind of core prevention street outreach, right? So I want to get to that in a second. And then there's the secondary intervention, secondary prevention model that requires a relationship with an emergency department level one trauma center. You've got the golden hour. Walk me through the secondary prevention model first. Like, how does that work at Aclavis? Well, I guess I'll start by saying based on getting a contract with the hospital, being partnered with the hospital, because there's a lot of organizations that show up at hospitals. I think what's different and unique about Aclavis, we've done hospital work for almost close to like 20 years, rather it was under Aclavis or our old previous employee cure violence. Um, anytime someone is shot, stabbed, or jumped on, someone from the emergency room, rather this, and depending on in the partnership that we got with different institutions, it could be clergy, meaning the chaplains at the hospital can make a call at some hospitals. It could be a case where it's the social worker department that can make the call. In some cases, it could be uh, the student uh, doctors or the doctors, the surgeons themselves makes the call, or it could be social workers in hospitals or nurses that can make calls. So, but what we have in common at all these hospitals, there's a protocol that each hospital call one number. And then once that, once the hospital person, identified person called that one number, uh, right now, either, right now I'm carrying the phone, but I've carried it for several years. Sheila's carried it for several years. They got a personal connection to the person that's answering the phone. So 
again. So one, you could get that call right now while we're sitting and talking. Exactly. So anytime someone is shot, stay out of jump on, go to the hospital, the hospital give us the call. Once the hotline call go off, we got a protocol where that. Once the call come in, we text whoever on call. And I'm saying this as a practitioner because I did hospital respond for five years and Sheila was my supervisor before I worked my way up and become case manager and all that. But once I get to the hospital within the golden hour, we call it the golden hour because there's a protocol with level one trauma centers that you got to be able to take anybody to come through the emergency room to the operating room within one hour. To me, I describe it as meeting the people on the worst day of their life. And I don't care if you're meeting the patient or you're talking to the family members. The fast forward is we go there, we triage, we ask questions, basically what led up to it. When you get to the hospital, you got to keep in mind that we know that law enforcement is going to be at the hospital. We know family members going to be, and we understand it's going to be a hostile situation when we get there. Depending on which institution we've went to, I've done several of them. The culture of the emergency room, too. We've changed the culture, how people at the emergency room even look at the target population because, again, it's, it's like a us or them thing or a good and bad thing. Tell, tell me more about that, Vaughn. Like, in situations where you've seen the culture of an emergency room that might might have kind of a condescending view or a looking down, like, it might just... I'm going to stop I could I could chime in there just coming from and I think that's part of what has been very um, transformative about our partnership working together Vaughn and I is I came from the position of working inside the hospital listening to the conversations and I was just I'm not I'm not a clinical person I was working in a sort of social work type function there so my job was to advocate I was a crime victim advocate advocate for the patients and hearing what the medical institution staff were saying and feeling and not that they're um, that there's anything wrong with them per se but they're overwhelmed and they don't understand the issue necessarily and I'm making a broad generalization that's not everyone but in their job is to perform a medical function and when this hostility that Bond describes comes in the hospital it's a man-made health situation right and they're they're they want to care for the patient they want to do a good job they want also sometimes to understand sometimes they don't want to understand it's overwhelming um, but that's where I think that our staff and the position of our staff in the emergency department can be very disarming um, it can be a, a, a door opening for them to have a better understanding because we're there with the expertise on these types of scenarios there with the expertise on this target population. That's why we're there. And so when you work side by side with someone on these situations, it changes the way you understand them. It changes and it opens a door for you to ask questions, both of the patient, but also of ACLIVIS staff and get to better understand what the communities are really facing. I think when you understand, it makes compassion easier. It makes compassion deeper. Um, and that hostility becomes very um, explainable and depersonalized because when someone comes in and they're told you can't see your family member right now, that's all they want to know is where is my person, yeah. right? So why wouldn't you take it out on the person who is telling you the bad news of I don't know where your person is or I can't give you an update just yet, right? So putting, putting that compassion, putting that understanding in the hearts and minds of the hospital staff is part of what we're there to do, even though it happens very indirectly and inadvertently, right? So the process helps hostility give way to understanding, then understanding gives way to compassion, compassion gives way to purpose. There you go. Reaching the gap. Yeah. So... It's, it's a very multifunctional intervention. Um, even though it's very simple, 
in in terms of design, it's simple, but it does check a lot of boxes in a very real and transformative way. What I can say working in this field, I've worked with hundreds, maybe thousands of people doing direct service violence prevention. The hospital, the hospital gig, it changes the way you feel about the issue. It's very, very real at the hospital in a way that it's not on the newspaper. It's in a way that it's not on social media. It's very, very real. There's moms, there's grandmas, there's children that are deeply affected. So yeah, it, it just you, it makes it personal. Very personal. Very personal. You see you see yourself in the people who are losing their minds right in front of you. So the, there's just to be just to be oversimplified, there's probably two situations and I'm, I'm positive you guys come up against. One situation is where that hostility from the victim of violence or maybe the family or whatever, that hostility kind of reigns and they may not want to have an interaction with somebody at Aklavis. Um, what what are your next moves in that scenario? The, the, the other question, the other side of that is somebody does engage, they're treated, uh, they're able to be discharged. But to your point, Vaughn, they just had the worst day of their lives, right? And so I would imagine in some situations, somebody is like, okay, I'm going to re reassess something in my ecosystem. And maybe this is employment or education or, or just needing support through their clinical journey and healing. Like, what are the kinds of things Aclavis does after that golden hour, after you've had that interaction with the patient in, in an acute setting? We follow the lead of the patient. We get the level of engagement that they're comfortable with um, in either scenario, but we don't give up. You know, we'll continue to check on them if they're not ready on day one. If you were just injured, I mean, someone just hurt you, it's okay not to trust everybody right away. So we're okay with that response if people are not ready to engage with a person they don't know on, on their personal challenges. Um, but really, you know, the, the work that we do in the community as in, you know, follow up and after care for patients is really driven by what they need and what they are capable of doing depending on their injury. So that the patient, the family members, what they're capable of doing, what their interests are, what their needs are, and the, their willingness to engage with us on those things, what we do is leave the door open. You know, we're here to be helpful. We don't do everything, we're no magic pill, but we're somebody who's in your corner and would like to see you come out of this better than before if we can help that. I, what I would add to that though is, when people talk, when people think about rejection or not wanting services, that's outside looking in when you've never done it, it looks like, oh, it could be a case of that. But I think that relationship and that credible messenger that those years of experience working in communities, people, we, we have a brand where people recognize the brand. People. When you got over 100 employees, people see it, whether it's on social media, relationship, and you've you've done this work for so many years, people recognize you in, in public, rather you was, because again, some of these folks remember, so you're meeting more than just the, the patient at the hospital, you're meeting family members too. So typically, if you look at violence, there's been some of the same neighborhoods that's been played with violence for a lot of years. When we look at data, what we're gonna work at, we're working in some of the worst communities in Chicago. When we when we does how we decide what well, street outreach we're gonna do. So when you got that household name, it's almost like a brand. When you come in the emergency room, people are asking for you by name, or saying, "Oh man, my uncle work here, my cousin work here," or someone's calling us that's from the community saying, "My nephew got shot," or somebody went to a hospital. So it's not a people think about it. It's realistically when you're looking at it, looking at it on his head, it's like you're, you're being part of the family. You 
you're welcome there and able to talk to and have conversations that the average, whether it's law enforcement or nurses or social workers, they may not have those frank, direct conversations. And for the most part, they're open to having dialogue with us and we meet them where they are. Like I said before, I was a hospital responder at first for years. Then even when I became the case manager, the case manager role is to follow with the patient while the patient's admitted in the hospital and work with the hospital staff with discharge planning, right? So say I'm triaging and the person don't have a job, maybe looking for employment, but it may be a case where somebody is school age but hadn't attended school in over a year. We're asking, we're triaging and asking questions that the patient knows their needs and what they want are. And we realistically about this transition and not people just walking away going right back to work, because sometimes the injury takes longer to heal than it is you can actually go back to work. Talk about the, the other side of, of what I know you all do, which is which is also significant, and it's the, you know, the street outreach, kind of the core prevention, right? So you've got a bunch of folks that are just spending every day out, talking to community members. If you hired me to do that job, and, and I, I highly advise you don't do that. You get a sunburn. Yeah, I would definitely <laughs> get a sunburn. What would, a what would my average day look like? Like, what, what does a day look like? What am I doing? First of all, let's start off by we will only hire you if we work in the community that you basically came from or had some enrolls. So it wouldn't just be, oh, man, David Smith, he's my friend, so we could just get him a job. It's not, it's not a hookup thing. It's you being because identified. Because it wouldn't work. No, you being identified from a probably someone like a supervisor. Like when we have a hiring panel, right, for the most part, the supervisors have autonomy to put who they think would be best fit on the panel. Then it's a panel of folks that picks the best person that represent not only the community, but that we think would best fit activists and represent activists. So I think the overall part of it is we're working, for the most part, during the winter, during the winter months, we work from 2 to 10 p.m. And then during the summer months, we work from 4 to 12. But right now we may be changing some of those hours and making it be more consistent from two to 10 because I think Sheila ran the data and looked at majority of the shoots and killings happen between certain hours. And we wanna be we wanna be on point on what's best practice, not just what we think or what we used to do. I think, but go back to your question about a day in the office or a day in the, in the street in or, or the steps or the shoes of a street outreach person is, the street outreach person start off their day by coming to the office and having a briefing on what areas might need the attention. Uh, what And I mean by what areas may need the attention on what could have happened the night before, identifying hot spots where they need to, need to target, where they've heard some people may be into it with each other, and then checking in with their participants because each person have a caseload of 15 to 20 high-risk individuals. Uh, then you got community hours where they either get together and go canvas one specific, uh, like a shooting response or something. But on a daily basis, you're either in the community that's, that you're assigned to, and then you come back to the office to document your day-to-day, what you just done in that spike. That's in and out the office through the whole day. But you're actually working in the community where that's probably been identified that's got the most shootings and killings. And then you're out there working with high-risk individuals and talking to high-risk individuals on a daily basis. If you want to add. No, I think you covered it for the most part. Um, and if there's conflicts that come up, you know, ideally you've deputized yourself, to Vaughn's point earlier, you've deputized yourself amongst your community as a problem solver and a mediator. So if and when conflicts come up, we're hoping that people will cue us in because I think a lot of people don't want 
a conflict to go further than it has to. So they'll invite us in to help resolve it, help mediate it. And a lot of this stuff be, for the most part, interpersonal or, again, there's been some spikes in different communities. But if you look at, we work in the seven communities, I think out of our seven communities, uh, there's been a decrease in violence in six of them. One of them, the one that still got a peak in violence uh, is one of our newest communities. And um, we hoping that those trends go down too. And, and again, I think the big picture is um, just trying to meet folks where they are. Like when you when you go and do work in a, a fresh new community, you're identifying who you are, getting the trust of the community. So, you know, th- this it's like a wave. It goes up and goes down with violence. But those communities that we've been consistent in and been funded enough to really work in the in those communities, I think we've gotten we've been had we've had great success in it because we've had opportunities to work with them on a constant basis. It ain't like you in one time and you out the next time. One of the things that you all have done so well in in my purview and what you have shared is building trust. And an, a, another layer to that is um, the very nuanced pieces to building those relationships. And I think there's a really interesting uh, phrase that you all have used before, which is trauma-informed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are stats that say that, you know, a good percentage of Chicagoans have been exposed to gun violence or other types of experiences. And whether or not, you know, the person, the patient or the family members, and it's it's a very holistic approach that you're taking. So recognizing that people are bringing their history into that emergency department or where they are on the street. So how do you all look at all of these components and really try to create this trauma-informed model into how you look at it through, as a public health issue? I think that um, part of being really trauma-informed is both understanding and honoring the trauma that people could potentially be carrying with them anywhere, not just in the emergency department, but everyone everywhere, and not letting that trauma like color your lens for who they are, right? So we understand it and we're compassionate wherever it could come from, wherever it could come up. But I think that's part of what it means to really meet people where they are is honoring the negative experiences that they might have had in their life and really upholding the resilience that they show showing up to life today, right? So it's it's allowing them the opportunity and, and showing them that no matter what they've been through, they're not counted out, they're not over. Because I think, you know, a lot of people that I know of have a criminal record that came from when they were under the age of 20. So the decisions they made when they were absolutely adolescents, they carry with them forever. And you can imagine how that might make you feel like I don't matter anymore. So to us being trauma informed is really honoring the power within every person that allowed them to continue waking up every day and going through life and surviving whatever it is that they've survived. I don't need to hear about all of it, but if you want to tell me, you can tell me. But mostly I want to see how do we how do we get you to your next phase? Because I'm so amazed that you're here and I'm glad to meet you. To me, that's kind of the trauma informed and then allowing them to tell us directly or indirectly how how to help them get there. They may not be able to see some of the angles, but you know, being open, being transparent, being compassionate, and honoring the good in people, I think is how you get them to see, well, hey, I think I could be better if I had this cherry on top, or if I if I had access to these things, how can we work on that? I, I, I'll add to that, that to me, that trauma-informed care we talk about is, like Sheila just touched on is, identifying what their needs are. 
like really listening to what they, because again, yes. if you if you if you're there and quiet enough, a person to tell you what they what what's really troubling them, and they don't have to be like I say, it could be wrong place, wrong time when you're meeting them, but you can meet someone in the community and have a direct conversation with them, and I, I, we got a saying about we can't be out nice, and we're not saying we could do everything, but what we will say is, is there anything we could do? How can we help? Right. So even when it came to um, with counseling, for a lot of years, counseling was taboo, especially the black men, especially the men. And then, you know, you, you meet people, men likely only go to the hospital if it's a car accident or some type of trauma or violent act. Right. So identifying these issues, when we identify some of these things, we try to incorporate those things into activists. So now I think we got two or three clinicians now mm-hmm. that's on staff that not only could talk to our staff, but talk to folks that's that's went through some type of trauma. But I think the big picture is just being up front, open and honest with folks. And then hearing them out, using reflective listening, making sure that they being they're being heard and trying to meet them where they are. I mean, everybody, everybody don't want a job. Everybody's not gonna go to work. But us being that credible messenger, you understand the, the workforce they're coming from. And when you understand the workforce they're coming from, you're an example of change. You can have a frank conversation with telling them like, okay, I, know, I got an idea what it is you do. I'm not saying I know exactly what it is, but what I can tell you from my experience is, you know, that's, that's got a short lifespan. Me being a wheelchair user for the last almost 30 years, there's not a lot of things that my wife's, you know, say delinquent, but it's not high risk individuals, a lifestyle that I have not probably done, maybe twice in some cases, right? I'm being direct with them, being open with them, and our staff is trained to be direct and open with them, but respectful. We're not going to ask them nothing that's going to incriminate them or incriminate us. So we're not at, we, we work, we're coming from a public health lens. Like it's like being a public health worker. The public health worker ain't going to police and saying who got HIV or who got diabetes. We, that's not that's not our approach. Our approach is to meet them where they are, engaging with them in a, in a natural, normal conversation, and just triaging what it is the needs are. And it could be housing, it could be employment, it could be reentry, and people coming straight home from prison that we've hired, been gone for thirty and twenty and thirty years, and we give them a, a you know a sense of belonging and talking to the their target population, talking to their peers. It's easy when you're talking back to your own peers. Okay, how who you are, you're comfortable talking to folks that you could relate to. And I think I would add to that the the part about um, you know trust and confidentiality and what's our role because yeah they're they're. They, they, this is a peer-to-peer conversation, but it's also a confidential conversation. We don't work for the hospital. We we're here for you, and what we talk about is between us. So it's protected. Even the family members that are there that care so much if you are alive, do you think mom is not going to ream you when she sees you? What were you doing? You got me all upset for what? So it's not that people don't care, but your people that are close to you, they have their own stake in what you say and what you're thinking. Having a confidential, neutral person who understands where you're coming from, I think we all need that. There's been a tremendous amount of uh, sustainable investment from government, especially for for what you do, because they see this as an issue that they're trying to address. But to your point, when you first started, you didn't say we're a violence prevention organization. You said you're a public health organization. So how do we reframe the narrative at the local, national level about what disruption truly looks like? in this holistic approach that you're taking to make communities well, and in turn, disrupting 
the future of those types of actions from happening. But it's hard to explain. And and I just love the way that you guys frame these things and the way that you look at this very differently than I think um, the way that the media is spinning it, especially for Chicago. But how do we continue to look at this with hope and positivity and the way that you are tackling these issues block by block to reach individuals? I feel like uh, invoking R.I.P. Dan Cantillon, who said to us years and years ago, just keep, just stay focused on what you're doing. Like, it's going to be one person at a time. And I think, you know, the media, that people need something to talk about. Wonderful. That's going to be the case, you know. When you're close to an issue that shows up on the news all the time, you could critique it if you want to. But again, people, they want something to talk about. What I think, um, you know, we've always focused on is really, really doing it one person at a time. And it is, I mean, the the amount of traction we've been able to get just with that approach is really impressive. It's kind of crazy how fast we've grown and how many one person at a time conversations we've been able to multiply into lots of people at a time because if everybody's having that one, two, three conversations, then it just expands, expands, expands. I, I smile at it because again, I think it's easy. I go back to, it's, it's, it's the relationships. I go back to people trusting you and you being able to be direct, right? Um, rather it's, city, county, or state, whether it's legislators or aldermans or commissioners or community, is you know, being true to who you really are and what it is you actually do, right? I think all of us all of us have a role and we all care. I think informing those legislators, because that's, that's what we tend, that's what we've been tasked to do and we've done for many years, even before we took the ham at Aklavis, we were talking about this, a public health approach where that it was multidisciplinary people that could get involved. Everybody got a role to play. It just may not be the same exact role. So we're not sharing nobody out saying, oh, you can't do this or you don't do this. All we're saying is be true to what your role is. We're not asking the librarian to be a violence interrupter. We're not asking that. We're not asking the church to come out and do front. I mean, we're not saying they can't do those things, but I'm saying if everybody's true to what it is they actually do, it's like a, it's like a team effort. I mean, you could be a point guard, you could be a center, all of us as a team, we play. A, it's, a, it's a team effort when you use public health. And right now, I think what adv- what activists have done was educated, not just for when we advocate and talk about money that's going into this direction. We're not just saying for activists. We we talked about it being just street outreach. Period. So that's that's what's been our push the whole time. City, county, state. We think more funds should be invested in this type of work, street outreach not taken away from what people want to get a law enforcement or other programs they want to do. I'm saying just invest in this because you're investing in people. One of the things we have is a great blessing in this city is we've got amazing men and women and amazing community organizations that are focused on health. But there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of money flying around. Everybody's kind of competing for philanthropy. We're all kind of out nicing each other. But at the same time, like... We want the money because we want to be able to do the stuff we're doing. And I know that that's the case in, in violence and violence prevention as it is in, in public health generally. How have you guys navigated that? How have you had the discipline to be able to do that? And, and how do you interact with those other organizations that might sometimes try to elbow you out of the way or throw shade when it's not productive or appropriate, but they do it because that's what humans do? 
Stay focused. I think when you care about the people, when it's solely about the people, you'll, per you'll, you'll put your personal to the side. When you care about people, and that's what I say about this type of work, you have to put your personal feelings to the side to care about people. Like To me, it's like I always tell people that anybody that know me know the firemen are my heroes, right? I don't care how tough you really are. I think the firemen are the most toughest people, men and women, in the world. I don't care what city, country, wherever you are. If you're a fireman or firewoman, you got to be courageous, right? And if you if you think about it from that standpoint, it's they're going into what the average person is running from fighting, running from a fire. We run it from the smoke. If you hear the fire alarm go out, everybody's alert to get out. We got a special, unique group of people who's tasked to go into that. That's how I look at who that is their is job. That is what they train to do. That is that is that, that, that is their highest. That's what they not, that's what they want to do. And again, go back to they're not worrying about what the police gonna do. Yeah. They're not worried about what the community going to do. They're not worried about what the doctor going to do. They got one specific job. If you call, we're coming. That's how activists really is. So you could, you, could, you could spend a lot of time focusing on the naysayers, or what this person's saying or ain't doing. I think we've just been, I mean, and we've took the, when like uh, First Lady Obama said, when they go low, we go high. When they high, we go low. <laughs> right? I'm just being honest with you. Like You've had to go high. And again, we're going to continue to go high because, again, from my knowledge and from what I've been told, this is the first time that a black agency with lived experience, with street credibility and with a, you know, a scenic background with, you know, criminal, you know, got, you know ex-offender or have ever got, received this much money at one time. And it came directly to the agency and not a pass through to a non-black agency or another agency. Um, that also motivates us to be, you know, be, you know, being our own super. To me, I always describe it like having your own superheroes. It's like, uh, what, what was the movie we had? Uh, Black Panther. Black Panther, right. I'm using that because to me, activists have demonstrated several things. One, that an African-American neighbor uh, organization could manage money, large amount of money. Uh, then it also showed that black folks could work together because we have 22 sub-grantees. For the most part, majority of them are African-American. Majority of them was grassroots organizations. Majority of them had never had funding directly or indirectly. So we've helped build up that capacity and demonstrate that we can work well together. And then we've also demonstrated that we can manage money to the amounts of you know, millions of dollars. So again, to me, it's a myth that we're trying to you know, do our part, but do our part with fidelity, right? And then stay in focus because you can get sidetracked on a lot of different things. If we just stay focused and true to who we are, it's like how the firemen are, to me. I think what's interesting is what you've described with some of the, not challenges, but just the unique way that you have stepped up is there are gatekeepers still. There are people that are deciding where money should flow. There are people deciding how things should be resolved, but you continue to focus on today and continue to do the work on Instagram, on Aclavis every <laughs> every day I see when you guys come up in my feed. So as you say, do the work, you've also amassed an incredible secondary mission of, like you said, people that have experiences or are from the communities that you intend to have impact. So how do you in a crazy world of workforce challenges, continue to inspire and 
lead with love and bring those people on and give them opportunities to grow. Because you both are tremendous leaders that have grown in your own right. And I've seen other members of your team step up and thrive. Because I think you are not a gatekeeping type of organization, you see the power in that evolution for your employees and for the communities that you serve. So how, how do you encourage others to do that? How do we encourage others to step up and think about the way that they hire, the way that they disrupt the thinking that they have to work with you and partner with you? And how do we be more inclusive? I'll, I'll so again, let's go back to me touching on just how we've uplifted our staff, right? And again, it's, 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 it's a belief system. It's a relationship system. Like to work with activists was not a type of job. You can just look through the yellow pages and say, okay, cool. I mean, we post jobs, we post a few jobs, but when it comes to certain things, these folks are handpicked, right? And they handpicked and then it's almost like the mentor being mentored, right? We're meeting one, teaching one. We all learning from each other. Like right now, we got we got out, but we just, we just was, we won a, a competitive opportunity to do a program that have existed for the last few years that I once helped uh, roll out called FLIP. And with the FLIP initiative, it allow you to hire folks and meet them right where they are, but to allow them to work on the block that they usually hang out on, right? And when you, to me, it's a, a entry way of introducing them to real street outreach or violence prevention work, but it's not criticizing them or knocking them or judging them. It's meeting them right where they are. Another thing that we typically do, I try to do in is when we're looking at promotions, not only just so much within, is who really wants to make a difference. Everybody, please, you got a five-year plan. And we trying to match their five-year plan with opportunities. Everybody ain't gonna do street outreach. Everybody ain't gonna be good at street outreach. Some folks gonna move on and do other things. So we we tend and we meet folks to try to make yourself more employable. We got a grant that we have for a hundred people that does street outreach, not just Aclipus employees. We did a pilot with Aclipus, just Aclipus employees. But once we won this grant, we were able to get a contract MOU going with my old uh, Northeastern University where. A hundred folks that's doing street outreach could go to Northeastern and activists would pay the tuition for two classes per semester. And we have up to like a hundred positions. That's just one of the things. But to me, going back to school is what helped change my mindset. It made me look at life and look at things totally different. Just, um, I think, piggybacking on what Bob was saying about, you know, our recruitment practices, I think also the servant leadership type vibe where there's not, you know, Tavon saying he has an open door policy. We're not, you know, we're in here working with the people. So it's a very um, sort of seamless environment where everybody works together. So people can see themselves in a leadership role, in the top leadership role, because they talk directly, we talk directly together. Um, and I think that that gives people, that's a disarming environment in which people can ask questions and they can learn just very directly through conversation how you get to the next level here or somewhere else. So I think for us, you know, we, we work with a lot of um, people who are early career in one way or another, and we make it, make sure it's an environment where it's not, it's okay to ask questions about how things work and you get to see how things work, but you end up stronger and more empowered with that knowledge. So I think people seeing seeing a pathway, being able to visualize themselves, being in a leadership role, being successful, I think helps build the workforce on a day by day type basis. The other thing I would add is, 
I'm openly telling the staff, like, hey, we need younger people. So, I mean, I'm quite sure you, some of you have seen some of our back office staff, but we probably got one of the youngest back office, and I'm saying accountants, uh, grant monitor and all that. We, we got probably the data person, all of them, like early on in careers, but they, you know, we got personal relationships with them as well, but they probably all in their early, th- probably just making 30. So again, we're passing the baton. We're teaching the next generation. And we're putting them, and they're in leadership roles where they can make decisions. Their voices are being heard. I think that's something that's unique with activists as well. We, we're empowering younger folks and making decisions. Because again, right now the future is, you know, I'm, I'm trying to see what the next generation is going to look like. And I'm trying to empower. I used to always have a saying, saying, I used to always say, you got next, and you got next, you got next. Now I'm telling those same folks I used to tell, you got next, you got right now. What you thinking? I always leave off what your thoughts is. Even if we have a meeting with with, with a funder or with a legislator, when we do a debrief, I ask them always, what's your thoughts? What you think of it? Because I want to know their opinion of it because you can learn something from anybody. Um, I have two other questions. So the first is, is for, they're both for each of you. Um, just talk a little bit about your personal journeys that brought you to this work. Um, and I know they're I know they're very different, Vaughn. I know you have lived experience, so to the to the degree you're comfortable sharing that, Sheila, same thing. How did you come to this work? So um, I first started working more in sexual and domestic violence, more on women's issues. Um, I studied. I had two degrees in undergraduate um, gender studies and psychology, and so I was interested in those issues, interested in helping. That's how I ended up working at Mount Sinai Hospital. In that role, I was the crime victim advocate, but I've been doing rape victim advocacy for a number of years before that. So at Sinai, that was, um, it's a high volume level one trauma center on the sort of near Southwest side of the city. And they see a lot of different patient populations and they're very, they do a, a lot of heavy lifting with a light budget is the best way I could put it, you know, which means the environment there, you have a lot of passionate people that are committed to seeing um, better health outcomes, but um, but they're very much in the mix with with the community. And in that job, I, I saw maybe, I don't know, 40 to 50 patients who had domestic or sexual violence issues. And I would see about 600 shooting victims a year, about 1,100 battery victims a year. And I was not exposed to this growing up. I had no idea this was happening. I don't care what they said on the news. It's different to see it in person. Um, and I felt, I don't even know what the word is, almost confused maybe at the response in the hospital that there wasn't more social input to these issues, that it was very clinically focused, which, you know, looking back makes sense, but um, but it was, it was something I was like trying to help the patient population and also recognizing with great humility my own limitations. If they don't want to talk to me about what's going on, that's cool, but who will, t- who will you talk to? Who can move the needle with you? Who can I, what can I do to support you if not talk to you about what's going on? So um, I did a lot of outreaching to, okay, well, who's out there doing what? And that's when I met the agency called Ceasefire at the time, and it was a totally different conversation with the patients. They, w- they could either name somebody who worked there or name the location of an office, and it was almost like flattering. Oh, they would come and visit me? They would come and see little me at the hospital? Um, but it was a service that they really wanted as opposed to feeling like I was trying to sell them on counseling or something that made sense to me. 
Um, so I just spammed them with referrals and they were like, okay, lady, calm down. We'll just make you a job. And they recruited me to help build out their hospital partnerships. I had the insight of what it felt like to work inside the hospital. I understood the perspective of the hospital employees and basically helped, um, build out partnerships there. And that's how Vaughn and I started working together, um, was there. But, you know, like I was saying earlier, when you're in the hospital and you see what people really go through, it, it changes you and changes how you understand um, your your role on this earth. So that was sort of how I got to this work. I think I alluded on earlier how I got to this work where a personal friend of mine who had went to prison when he was 15, came home 35, so he did 20 years in prison. This was his job. It was just like one of his first jobs. And once he got involved in it, an older guy from my neighborhood introduced me to him. Me and him had mutual friends and relationships, and once we grew, he had got this job. And once he told me about the job, I understood exactly what it was he was trying to get done and told him I would help him. I, I had this saying that I still use to this day, call me, but call me last. Do all the networking you're going to do, but you could call me, but call me last. So once he introduced me to violence prevention and told me what it was he was really trying to do, it was simple to me. Okay, cool. I'm going to go talk to, you know, I was working with high risk. I was talking and interacting with high-risk individuals because we all was living this risky behavior lifestyle. And it took, I volunteered for the first three years. When I, I Basically, when I turned 30, I said I was going to do something different with my life. So I started volunteering from basically close to 30 years old. And I once got employed. I went from like 2003 to 2006 volunteering. And once I got employed, I actually took the job. I started out as a violence interrupter in the Rosen community because I'm from the Rosen community. But prior to that, I had already been paralyzed probably, man, close to maybe 15 years at that point. I mean, I had been, yeah, so I had been paralyzed for a while at that point. So I had a lot of relationships, a lot of friends throughout the city. I did that, I did that job, got the training for being the case manager, then went on to do the hospital responder program. And once I got, became a hospital responder, I got bit by that bug and bit by that bug, bug meaning that my thought pattern was different because now I'm working with people that's been hurt already. And a lot of them was innocent people. Wrong place, wrong time, women, grandmamas, kids. And I had this I had this idea, I had this idea in my mind that even coming up that, you know, when you come up rough, you're saying, you know, if you if you decide to live a risky lifestyle, certain things happen. You can go to prison, you can get shot, you could die. That was understandable. But to see these innocent folks come in, wrong place, wrong time, I mean, I had to make a difference. And then my kids was growing up, my kids was getting older. So my kids was coming through grade school and they were they were probably the same age it was with people that was getting hurt. So I'm like, no, I got to really do something about this. So I did what I did best. I networked and used my whole relationship, my whole Rolodex, any and everybody I knew. I like basically was have them in, in, embedded in this violence prevention initiative on how we was going to stop shooting, senseless shootings and killings. And again, what they did with their personal life, we didn't even inquire that. It wasn't a case where if a person was you know, hustling or hustling on the street, whatever way that means of he fed his kids, we did, I didn't inquire that. I was more focused on shootings and killings. And I think that's what we tend to, we get sidetracked on jumping into other different things. The arena we were looking at was shootings and killings. And I wanted to stop as many shootings and killings as we can on the front end. That's what street outreach looks like on the front end. The hospital respond part was when someone had already got hurt and they slipped through the cracks. So I was gonna be, then I looked at what could stop this from being an ongoing situation with someone like myself that was gonna be real vigilant about preventing this from being an ongoing situation, but being more aggressive on preventive. So once he introduced me to this work, I started out volunteering, then I got 
employed. I went from just 900 hours to working my way up, going to school, getting my bachelor's, getting my master's, becoming the program manager over one part of the program, then becoming the program director over the state of Illinois, and then working my way up to being the CEO of Aclibus. And the rest is history. I think now we're probably, you know, probably one of the largest outreach working groups that's in, this, that's in the state budget to do this work, not just locally in Chicago, but to actually train other folks. Vaughn, what would you want people to know who, who have not spent time on the South Side and who might live in this city, but they're exposed to all the same social media, popular culture, things that paint certain parts of Chicago as, you know, Chirac or, or just these other stupid euphemisms, right, that aren't really representative of, of a beautiful community of people. What would you want to know? What would you want somebody that's never been to some of the neighborhoods south of downtown to know about these places? I always say this as just a, a, a running joke with cracking and facking it. There's, it there, there are two different types of people. Those that are looking at this problem from binoculars and those that are looking at it from a magnifying glass. If you want to really see Chicago, Chicago's a beautiful place, right? And if you really care about people, go to where the problem is. Go to the, roll up your sleeve and say, man, I'm gonna do my part. Go to, go to an agency like Aclavis or any other agency that's doing grassroots uh, work and say, how could I help? And then stay true to what it is that you could bring to the table. You may be great at, at tutoring, right? It may be something unique that an that, that agency like Aclavis may not be doing. But we could build on that, build on that, where you could feel good about what you do and how you're giving back to the community as well. So I think where people just got to, not just go off what they visually see on TV, but roll up their sleeve and get out, get jump right into it. But go somewhere where you're going to feel comfortable. Don't try to create something new or figure it out. Man, go to where your passion is, and then you could you could build on that. To me, that's what we've done. We've built it on passion, and we've built Aclavis based on people, places, and things. Great, great answer. All right, last question. Super easy question. I've known you guys for, like, like I said earlier, five years or so. I love the way you guys work together. I, I love your complimentary skill sets. I love the banter, like just sitting with you guys for two or three hours. Anytime I get a chance, it's always a joy. Sheila, I want you to tell me what is what is one of the, the leading things you really respect about Vaughn as a colleague and a professional in this work. And then Vaughn, I want you to do the same for Sheila. Um, I mean, I think that a lot of that, let me, let me try to hone in on just one thing. I think that he really embodies the spirit of taking each day for what it's worth and never letting the world get you down. I mean, I think that there were many, he had many opportunities, endless opportunities to quit lots of things, endless opportunities to quit something. And that's just really not who he is. And, you know, it's motivational and inspiring. And and it is, um, but in a way that is, you know, again, I keep using the word disarming, but lets people, it's very human and makes people comfortable when they're possibly getting feedback that they might not want to hear, right? So I think that's probably, I think his ability to inspire people and his personal drive that is, doesn't come off like, a, you know, Indy 500, but it is, it's evident when you're around it. Um, in a very sort of simple way. It's just inspiring. And if I had to sum it up in uh, 
maybe a few words, but a word to de- would describe who Sheila is and who she's been is uh, loyal. She's been loyal. She's been dedicated. So we got to run it. I got to run a joke. We talk about because we when you talk when you hear when you hear people talk about this issue, you hear them talk about black or black and brown or black or black and brown, right? We laugh and joke. We got to run a joke about freedom riders. About a freedom rider, you got to understand what a freedom rider really was. Right, and it takes all types. That's why you're looking at this approach from public health, where that, truthfully, coming from where she come from, she don't have to care as much as she do about this this work or this population. Right, we talking about black men that's mostly getting hurt, or black folks or black and brown folks that's getting hurt. So, to me, she's demonstrated for the last, like I say, I met her probably in 2006. Six. Right, she's been dedicated to this work tirelessly. Rain, sleet, snow, 365 days, 24-7. 17 years. Right. She's been dedicated to this work just as much as I've been, right? And sometimes in some cases more because she pays very close attention to the details. You'd be surprised how many roles we've played doing this work. Both of us. Rather it's just the audit, uh, day-to-day operation, HR issues, hiring process. We, 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 we complement each other, but I think the overall unique part of it is that passion. And I've had the luxury of meeting her parents and her grandparents. So I could say it's a, you know, she, she come from a, a family of people who care about people, right? I tell them this all the time. I, I've thanked her parents and her grandparents for lending her to not just activists, but to this cause. But I think to me overall, there's a lot that people could do but it's very little that you see people personally that really care that don't come from that that same demographics. I mean, it's 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 a it's a it's it's a sight to see when people really care. To me, when people really care, you can feel it. You can you can feel. Love. I told you, I go back to love. You can feel love. You can feel genuine care about people, and I feel like she's she's demonstrated that. We we got a joke that other staff will say you can't outwork her. I don't care who you are, you can't outwork her. Oh, bro, I, you know what I'm saying? I, the passion. You gotta have compa- you gotta have passion for it too. So to day in, day out, day in, day out, day in. She can pack her bag tomorrow and leave. I tell I tell her that all the time, like, hey man, these these my people. It's gonna be hard for me to be like, oh man, I'm just gonna take my talent to South Beach. I'm gonna get on out of here. What would my mama say? You know what I'm saying? I got sisters and brothers that these are my nieces and nephews. Her, she coming from a you know a, a a total different lens. So you got to have some type of, you got to really, really, really care for care for people to do this work and be get all the bumps and bruises she've had and be all the finger pointing and oh man, it's the white girl and she did this and she run. The he says she says to go through all that, man. You got to you got you got you got to care. So to me, caring, I would say compassion, caring, trust, loyalty. But loyalty, I way love to me. The HC3 Podcast is a production of Third Horizon Strategies. Associate producers are Megan Phillip and Topher Rasmussen. Executive producer is David Smith. The music is by Don Finter. Help others find our show by leaving a review and a comment. For more information about the Healthcare Council of Chicago, please visit our website, www.hc3.health, or drop an email to meghanmegan at hc3.health. Lastly, we want to express our appreciation to the incredible community organizations who have tirelessly devoted themselves to the betterment of the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. We'll see you next time.